30 years ago, back in 1993, 30,000 different health professionals, people who worked as nurses, physicians, hospital administrators, people who worked in third-party payers or insurance companies, people who worked on the research side of things gathered for one of the largest gatherings ever of this organization, the American Heart Association. They were gathering together because this was the apex of the period in time in history where we understand the full impact of the dangers and the warnings of what it means to live with a high cholesterol, high fat diet. Can I get an amen? <laughs> and so all of these people gathered upon Boston, Boston, Massachusetts, and they gathered in the convention center. And there was an investigative journalist who was there who decided that she was going to follow these health professionals at a heart conference after all the seminars, after all the keynote presentations, after all the talks, all the research had been given, where did they go eat lunch? <laughs> and you know where they went, right? They went to fast food. And so she observed this for days and decided to confront some of the people and it's like, hey, you're eating McDonald's burger right now, you're at a conference for the American Heart Association, do you feel like you're setting a bad example? Do you feel like you're being a hypocrite? Do you feel like you're undermining the very message of why you all are gathered together? And people had a variety of answers, but the best answer came from one guy who said, absolutely not. And she said, why? And he said, because when I left the convention center, I took my name tag off. I wonder if that's how many people think of us in the church. That we go to a lot of seminars, we hear a lot of keynote presentations, we know of all of the benefits and the joys of ministry, and yet when we leave this place, we go out and we live our lives in such a way that it doesn't seem authentic or real. Brennan Manning says that the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today are Christians who profess Jesus with their lips and then go out and live their lives that undermine the gospel. And so today what I want to address is what does it mean for us to have a genuine kind of life with God? And this flows perfectly out of what Paul has been building to at this point in time. What we promised is that, yes, it starts with the mess that we've made of our lives in the world and being able to acknowledge that and come to terms with that. And it's only when you come to terms to that that you understand what a gift God's grace is for us. And that it's only an understand on the other side of sin and salvation that you're able to fully understand the character of God and his work in the world. And then in this last segment, it's not just what a mess, what a gift, what a God. It's also the so what. What a difference. Does Jesus make any difference in your life and in mine? One that you can see. One that's not just a name tag spirituality, but a real Christianity. 
In the midst of the gospel, we understand that the promise that Paul made at the beginning of his letter was that the gospel is this. In Romans 1.16, he says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Is that power at work right now in your life? I believe it can be. And in so in some of the most important verses in the entire letter of one of the most important letters that was ever written, the Apostle Paul says this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual, or as we will learn, your reasonable or your logical worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, so that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so when Paul is going to get to the so what portion of his letter and what kind of difference the gospel can really make, he doesn't want a surface level transformation, but wants to change us truly from the inside out. And the way that that change begins is where he begins by saying that we need to keep God's mercy in view. Therefore, by the mercies of God, keeping God's mercy right in front of you. Back when we used to live in California, we had a pet at the time by the name of Shasta. Because I'm a girl dad, this is what Shasta was often subjected to. Great pet. Very energetic dog. Kelly used to refer to Shasta as being vastly underemployed. Working dog. I could literally get on my bicycle. I could pedal three miles in ten minutes. Going at a breakneck speed really early in the morning. Shasta right next to me. We'd get back to the house. He would sit down by the breakfast table and say, literally, that's all you got? Just so energetic dog. And with this dog... um, He was great most of the time, but every once in a while, you'd be taking this dog on a walk, and he would get so excited, he just couldn't help himself. Like, he would start to bark. He would start to jump up and down. Like, if he saw another pet near him, he he had the potential of just going berserk. And so, we engaged with the services of a pet trainer, psychologist, whatever it was, guru, Yoda, whoever it was, but they were there to help us. And... Because what we knew is that what we were doing wasn't working. That, you know, what would happen on a typical walk is taking Shasta on a walk, Shasta sees another dog, gets overly excited, starts to go crazy. I get excited to match his enthusiasm and start pulling on his leaf and yell, leash and yelling no at him. That pattern was not working effectively. So I was surprised to find out that when we were working with the pet trainer that the goal was before Shasta got excited was to give Shasta a command. That it wasn't to wait until something was going to explode, but as we got near to another dog to look at Shasta and have trained him to say, watch me. And Shasta's attention would turn to me as opposed to what was happening on the street. And that as a result there was a very different way that Shasta would interact because he was keeping his eyes where they ought to be. I don't remember where I learned the phrase, so I don't know who to quote, but I will quote it anyway. 
What you keep in view, you will often do. Will you say this with me? What you keep in view, you will often do. Your mind is your place of first freedom. Your mind has the incredible free capacity to focus its attention on whatever you direct it to focus on. And if there's going to be any lasting transformation or any lasting change in your life or in mine, it is going to be through the first step in the process, which is to make sure that our minds are oriented around the mercies of God. And for 11 chapters, this is exactly what Paul has been trying to explain to us about the nature of sin and the depth of our brokenness and our depravity and the nature of his salvation and what Christ has done for us in the cross and the nature of how God is working to create not just holy individuals but a a holy community and pulling us together and that we're getting to see the magnitude and the scope of the sovereignty and the providence of God in his mercy. And so for 11 chapters, Paul has been helping us to untangle this and to like pour this out before us. And the question is, are we living our lives in such a way where we are keeping the scope of that mercy before our eyes? I have a friend who says that if you can think of most of the sins in your life, you probably didn't commit that sin by thinking of, does my mother think that I ought to do this? Keeping God's mercy in view is the primary kind of rudder in the ship that directs how we are to live. So if the gospel is not just going to be surface level, but it's going to get deep within us, the first thing is is we're going to keep God's mercy in view, not lose sight of that. And then the second thing that we're going to do is that we are going to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. Now, technically what Paul says is that we are going to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. One of the most misunderstood understandings, because when we look at art and we look at culture and we see all of those kind of Greco-Roman statues, we think that they in the ancient world, that in the Greek thought, that they loved the human body. They did not. In Greek philosophy and thought, they saw the body as wasteful and distorted and disposable. And that the only thing was value was what was in your soul and in your mind, but your body was the kind of thing that you could abuse and totally get rid of. This was kind of the main Greek notion of, the, of, of what the thought was. So you can imagine that in the heart of the Roman Empire, the heart of the Greco-Roman world, that as Paul is writing a letter and he's building to the climax of the so what, what are we going to do with all of this stuff that had to do with the mercy of God, that you are to offer your body as a living sacrifice. You could have just heard the murmurs and the gasps as that was being read out loud. What does that mean for us? That means that we are to offer our whole lives to God. That sometimes we want to offer God just a little bit of our money or a little bit of our time or a little bit of our attention or a little bit of a prayer or whatever it is. We want to give God a little tiny bit, but we want to keep the vast majority for ourselves. If there's going to be real change in your life and mine, it's going to be from the wholesale nature of us being all in on offering our whole selves to God. Body, soul, mind, spirit, wallet, all of it, relationships, all of it. we got to be all in 
on this one life that God has entrusted to us. And as an aside, let me be very clear, and this will cut against the grain of one of the greatest myths in our society, is that I can do whatever I want with my body and it doesn't matter. You cannot read faithfully the gospel and come to that conclusion. That God cares very deeply about our bodies. That you and I have been given a body in creation. And that God has a design and a desire for us. For our whole lives to come before him. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, in addition to us being disconnected from kind of the way that they were thinking back then about bodies, we are also disconnected from the way that kind of religious practice was then compared to what it is today. And so, five different references Paul has here to kind of worshipful, sacrificial kind of language that's going on here in the text. But because we worship very differently today, you need to understand that behind what Paul is telling us to do, there are two primary different ways that you offered offerings in the ancient world. That you had sin offerings and you had thank offerings. Sin offerings were when you needed to fix something, you needed to atone something, you need to fill some sort of gap. There was something missing from your life or there was some way that you were falling short or whatever it was. You would make a sin offering in order to be able to please or appease the gods. And then there were thank offerings. Thank offerings were acts of sacrifice or worship that were done in response for something out of gratitude for something that had been done for you. Now, from what you know of everything that we've done in the first 11 chapters of Romans, when you talk about the extent of the sin and the salvation and what Jesus has done in the cross and all of those different things, when Paul says, hey, you need to offer yourselves as a living sacrifice, is that a sin offering or a thank offering? It's really clear. It's a thank offering. There's no way you can read Romans up to this point and think, that Jesus hasn't paid the price in the cross. That Jesus hasn't done what he was called to do and that he is the one who has made us whole. And this is what now distinguishes the gospel from all of the other religions, all the other practices, all of the other worldviews that were going on then and are still going on today. That in all the different religions, what's happening over and over again is that we are to make sin offerings to try to make sense and to pull together the fragmented pieces of our lives. In Christianity, we believe that in the gospel that God in Jesus Christ has already done that. And so the invitation is for us to be a thank offering. And this is the understanding of what it means for us to have a reasonable, logical, which is the way that I think it ought to be translated, not spiritual, worship. The word is lokizomai there. It literally means that the most logical thing that you will do if you understand the mercies of God and what God has done for you in Jesus Christ, the most logical thing in the world is for you to offer yourself out of gratitude to God. The very same word for grace is the very same root for thanksgiving in the New Testament. That thanksgiving and grace 
go exactly together. This is a picture of a famous theologian from the 20th century. His name is Paul Tillich. He experienced the horrors in Europe firsthand as a chaplain in World War I of trench warfare and saw the full extent of the brutality of what human beings could be capable of and saw it on a massive scale. He was one of the early and rare Christian critics of the Third Reich of what was happening in his native country of Germany. And because of his outspokenness to what was happening in his country and his criticism, he had to flee to America. He lived here and he taught at a school by the name of Union Theological Seminary. And one of his students, when Paul Tillich was teaching at Union Theological Seminary, was a young student seeking his PhD by the name of Al Conwisher, who is my grandfather. One of my deepest regrets, because I made the decision to go in to pastoral ministry only a few months before my grandfather died. One of my largest regrets is I always assumed that I'd have time to talk to him about ministry. And there's a lot of questions that I would have loved to have asked him. But one of the things that he did talk about and what I did know was for his fondness for Paul Tillich's teaching, the impact on his life. And in particular, one book on his shelf that was called The Shaking of the Foundations. Tillich says this, Grace strikes when we are in great pain and restlessness. It strikes us when we walk through the dark valley of a meaningless and empty life. It strikes us when year after year the longed-for perfection does not appear, when the old compulsions reign within us as they have for decades, when despair destroys all joy and courage. Sometimes at that moment a wave of light breaks into our darkness and it is though a voice were saying, you are accepted. You are accepted, accepted by that which is greater than you. Don't try to do anything now. Perhaps later you will do much. Do not seek for anything. Do not perform anything. Do not intend anything. Simply accept the fact that you are accepted. And if that happens to us, we experience grace. Do you know that God loves you right now just as you are? Do you know that? 
Not as you should be, as you are. Do you know that there is nothing you can do to try to manipulate God into loving you anymore? That there's nothing that you can do to make God love you less. The firm grip that God has on you is that you are accepted. And so you can drive yourself crazy and drive the people around you crazy trying to live your life in such a way that you will be holy, as Paul says, which just means to be distinct or to be set apart, that you can be holy or that you could be acceptable or that you could be complete, that you could be whole, all of those things. You can do that. You can work your life, orient your life in such a way that you will run around and try to gain that acceptance by offering sin offering and sin offering and sin offering in order to try to fill that gap. The Apostle Paul says that you will never truly be whole and happy and content and real and authentic in the love if it is such in a way where you were trying to be accepted. The gospel says you are accepted. And so be grateful and offer your whole life as an act of worship to him. That's the most logical thing in the world. How do we change from the inside out? We change by keeping God's mercy in view, by offering yourself as a living sacrifice, and finally, by the renewing of your mind. Survey that was recently done. The survey asked Gen Z what their career aspirations are. I want you to turn to somebody next to you and guess what is the number one most frequent career aspiration for somebody who is Gen Z right now. Turn to somebody next to you and try to guess. I'm going to give you a hint. It's not a lawyer. It's not an accountant. It's not a doctor. It's not an entrepreneur. It's not even being a tech mogul. The number one career aspiration of the entire Gen Z generation is this. It is being a social media influencer. You might be thinking right now, this is when we get to the Rich Conwisher grumpy old man portion of the program. <laughs> and I literally have a whole section of the sermon that I went on for a rant for a while. And I'm like, I don't think that's what the Spirit... It's really funny and it's really good. But it's not what the Spirit of God wants me to say. <laughs> I'm going to park the grumpy old man. And I just want to be really clear about one thing. You know what not one single person surveyed said that they wanted to be when they grow up? They don't, no one said, I want to be the person that's being influenced by a social media influencer. <laughs> we want to be the one influencing, right? But we don't want to be the one that's influenced. That's for somebody else. 
Put on your eighth grade grammar hat for a moment. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is in the passive voice. This means that the choice that is before you is not, do you want to be the influencer or do you want to be influenced? The choice that's before you is, you are going to be influenced. And the question is, what or whom is going to influence you? What's going to do that? Do not be conformed to the pattern or the habit of this world. Better translation, this age. This age has a particular era or a way that it is trying to mold you into its likeness. Don't fall for that trap. But you can be transformed by the renewing of your mind, by God's Spirit. Primary choice before us today with our lives is, are you going to be influenced by the almighty algorithm or are you going to be influenced by almighty God? Who's influencing you? Now, behind closed doors... In offline conversations, when I can get you to actually be honest with me and not give me Sunday school stained glass answers and questions when you ask, some of you are willing to have the audacity, because this has happened to me before in my office, where somebody will say, hey, they're struggling with something. Isn't this all just a mind game? Isn't this just some sort of mind trick, this whole faith thing? That is usually when I go to my bookshelf and I pull off a deep theological resource that's called Does My Goldfish Know Who I Am? Which is a book that was compiled of questions that kids asked that scientists attempted to answer. And a little boy by the name of Tom who had a question about the human mind. And in the midst of that book, there is a scientist that tries to explain in language that little Tom can understand at nine years old, the distinctness and the magnitude and the beauty of the human mind. That the human mind is only about three pounds. But within the human mind, you have, in a typical adult, about a hundred billion neurons. And that each of those neurons has the capacity, kind of like a tree, to kind of have branches and to spread out. And that each of those different neurons has the capacity to build those patterns or those bridges. And, and to do so, each neuron can do that for about five or 10,000 different ways. In other words, your brain has the capacity for 500 trillion or more different kinds of patterns and connections. Every memory, every thought, every influence in your life is a different set of those kinds of patterns in your brain. And so, yeah, let me answer your question. Of course this is a mind game. Can you think of anything more magnificent in all of creation, in all of its splendor and glory on the planet Earth that's more intricate, more amazing, and with greater capacity than the human mind? 
And that the primary vehicle by which God will enact the change and the transformation that happens in human history is what happens in between your ears. And so don't dismiss this thing of it's just a mind game. Think of the 500 trillion different ways that you have to be able to think and be faithful and to live and to orient your whole life before God and all of the different possible pathways that God can choose from in his sovereignty to influence you through your mind. You can be conformed or you can be transformed. It's almost seven years to the day that I preached my first sermon for you. And in one of my first sermons for you as your pastor, I told you the story of Pastor Joe. Pastor Joe was a successful pastor who had a secret struggle. And eventually that struggle came to light. He got caught. And he needed to seek treatment. And so he became a part of a group. And as he was in that group, Pastor Joe did what pastors tend to do when they're in a group setting. Tended to try to tend to the needs of others as opposed to attending to his own needs. So Pastor Joe in that group was one of the first people to say an encouraging word, to pat somebody on the back, to affirm somebody, to help to pull somebody else's story out of them. The group leader had to keep pecking away at Pastor Joe. And to try to convince him to share his story. And to be vulnerable. which eventually Joe did. He told his story. And by the time he finished telling his story, his head was in his hands. He was heaving with sobs. The tears were pouring down his face. And he wouldn't look up. And the group leader said, Joe, look up. And Joe was like, I can't. I'm too ashamed. Joe, look up. And by the time Joe was willing to look up, he didn't see shame or judgment or condemnation. He saw love. He saw acceptance. He experienced grace. Henry Cloud, who recounts the story, says this. Love might be available to us, but are we available to love? It's right here. The magnificent, unrivaled love of God. It's available.
an entire reign of the Almighty, willing to pierce and to get into your body, into your mind, and your whole life. Can we push past the name tag spirituality and get to the point where God makes a real difference in your life and in mind? And we do that by keeping God's mercy right in front of us, by being willing to offer our lives in an act of gratitude and thanksgiving, not in order to be accepted, but because we already are accepted, and that the renewing of our minds can be the frontiers of human discipleship. You can change. And so let us pray. Forgive us, God, for setting bad examples and for living our lives in such a way that undermine the very nature of your good news. Help us to keep your mercy right in front of us. For us to look to you as you command us to watch you. We pray, God, that you will help us to understand that, there, that we can give our lives in thanksgiving to you. We don't have to earn anything. We can get off the hamster wheel of religion and we can become an offering. Thank you for the shaking of the foundations. And that worship is the most logical thing in the world to do when we know that we are holy and acceptable in your sight. Open our minds, God, to being influenced by you. Help us to not be conformed to the patterns of this age. And Father, for the love that is available to us, make us now available to your love.